0: I'll be reading this morning from Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I'll pray. Lord, again, we are just so grateful for all that you are to us. Thank you, God, for the cleansing that you have brought to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can approach you, call you Father, and that you hear us, and that you are eager, God, to have us um, enter into fellowship with you. We pray that as we look at your word, God, that you'd minister to us as only you can, for your name's sake and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. may be seated. I appreciate John filling in for me last week, spur of the moment. I hated doing that to John. He's um, quite the trooper, but I was looking at uh, on Saturday... What was happening with flights from San Antonio to Denver? Because I was in Colorado teaching and saw all the Saturday flights were being canceled, and there was no weather issues. So I figured Sunday they would be canceled as well. So I jumped in the truck and started driving to Colorado. So it was a great time with the Lord Um, while I was up, up there and back. Great student body. Got all the way to Colorado. Didn't have any issues and was driving up the mountain where the school is. No issues until I got right to the top of the hill where their main campus is, and it was covered nice, and I started sliding backwards. So I thought my prayer life was in order, uh, but then it really got in order. I slid about 100 yards down the hill backwards in my truck and was able, by God's mercies, to just slip right into one parking space that was there, the only one, and, um, and I stayed there for a whole week, never started up my truck again. <laughs> so God was good. Um, I want to make an announcement. Um, I made it a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago or so, but just by way of reminder, next Sunday will be Sanctity of Life Sunday, and that is the Sunday where we have our annual baby dedication. And Patsy counted by her reckoning on the way over here to church, there are seven families that we think have had babies. We know they've had babies. It may be more than seven. So. And I've had three families contact me saying that you'd like to have your babies dedicated next Sunday. So that's coming up next Sunday. So if you're interested in doing that, um, please let me know. And if you forget, we can still do it. Um, So we look forward to having all those families and the babies um, up here next Sunday up front with me. Um, So it's been a while since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We've finished um, the first five chapters. And on the sixth chapter here, Jesus starts talking about practicing our righteousness, and he uh, mentioned um, and, and in that three acts, aspects of practicing our righteousness. One is giving, giving alms, and then the second is praying, and the third is fasting, and so we skipped um, what we call the Lord's Prayer, um, and I told you we'd be coming back to it, and now we are. And so this was beginning in verse 9, pray then in this way, not as the Gentiles do or not as the Pharisees do, where they're just wanting to be recognized by men. And so we are told in verse 5 that when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in their synagogues in order to be seen by men. In verse 6, but when you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door and your father who sees in secret will hear you. Don't use meaningless repetition, verse 7. Because you're thinking that you'll be heard for your many words. God doesn't, is not counting words. We count words when we turn in papers to our professors, but we are not counting, God does not count words when we talk to him. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. So why then do we even pray? Good question. I heard somebody say, um, a five-point Calvinist say, that everybody prays like a Calvinist, meaning that we pray and we and, um, and we say, God, work in people's hearts. Do their work, your work. Turn people's hearts. And that sounds like a five-point Calvinist. And I heard somebody else say um, that Calvinists pray like they're Arminiists, in that they pray. <laughs> because prayer means that everything is not fixed. God knows everything before it's going to happen, but God wants us to pray. In fact, he said that some things will not happen unless you pray. You have not because you ask not. And so God wants us to be engaged in the process, and it's not because it's the process that matters, but really it's being engaged in the relationship with him would be a better way to say it. It's a personal relationship with God, and that personal relationship is is evidenced in that we talk to him. Some people talk more than others, some men talk more than others, very few men talk more than women, um, at least when marriages go. Patsy, I come home, and Patsy knows I've been teaching all day, and she goes, so you've already gotten your 500 words out, have you? <laughs> and uh, I was, it feels like 5 million, and yes, you're right, you know, I'm just it's hard to say anything more. But God is a communicating God. He is a Father who loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. He speaks to us, and He would have us speak to Him. It's all part of a good, healthy relationship. Nobody can tell you how often husband and wife ought to talk, but they ought to be talking. And a relationship where there's no communication is not a good relationship. And so this is a Jesus saying, this is how to pray. This is how to communicate. I should say again, right at the outset before getting into the details, this prayer is never repeated in the New Testament. There's no record of the early churches um, quoting this, this church. This became, became a habit, the church where we grew up as a family. Every Sunday, we all would stand, and they would recite the Lord's Prayer. It made a big impact on me as a child. It's very impressive to hear that. And so there's nothing wrong with repeating it, nothing wrong with memorizing it, but that wasn't Jesus' intention. It was meant to be just an example of how to approach our Father in heaven and not meant to be a, a substitute for communication, but an example of communication. Because if it just becomes a form, if it becomes a ritual, then it, then it's not communication, it's just ritualistic. So God wants us to be in, in personal contact with Him. If you've ever had a chance to, to be involved in the process of somebody coming to Christ, you often will counsel them. Now you need to talk to Jesus. You need to talk to God. Well, what do I do? Well. Sometimes you can just say, well, say after me, and I've done that. Other times you just say, figure it out. It's between you and him. Just talk to the Lord. God wants you just to speak from what's on your heart. You don't have to be pretentious. You don't have to hide what's on your heart. You don't have to act like you're being all spiritual. Just speak what's on your heart. Who does God hear? Only the Christians, or does he hear all? There are those verses in the Bible that make it sound as though God does not hear the prayers of the unrighteous, but that doesn't mean that God is not hearing. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. He hears everything, and there are plenty of instances in the Bible where unbelievers cry out to God, and God hears their prayers. So we don't want to think that prayer is only for the Christian, but the Christian is in a special relationship with God, wherein we do call Him Father. And we have a relationship with him that the rest of the world does not have. And so our prayers are are more dear to to the Lord, um, though that's not to say that he closes his ears to anyone else who prays. So pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven. Don't miss the first word, our. It is very significant. Jesus is not forbidding individualistic prayer. My Father who is in heaven, but it's our Father. He's putting the emphasis on the relationship that believers have with each other. We should always be cognizant of that. Always foremost in our mind that we are not isolated units, but that we are part of the body of Christ and we stand together. I truly believe this is why The Spirit of God compels us to pray corporately, to ask other people to join us in prayer when we are going through crisis. It is not because God is impressed with the numbers of people praying, but God has made us one in Christ, and He wants the body of Christ to stand together in unity as we approach Him. That's what is dear to His heart. It's like a father who sees his children playing in harmony. That means so much more than to see them in their separate corners with they're each having their time out, but they're doing fine because they're all alone. No, you want to be able to see them all play together and not bash each other's heads in, right? And that is why I believe it brings, it brings joy to the heart of God when we pray corporately, our Father. And when we pray individually going into our closet, we still are corporate in our mindset that we are not Alone, We are not islands. Daniel prayed this way when he prayed for the nation of Israel. He fully identified with Israel. All through that lengthy prayer in Daniel 9, it's our sins, our iniquities. God forgive us for what we have done. Daniel had nothing to do with that sin. But he saw himself as linked to, as inseparable from um, the community that he was a part of how much more we should in the body of Christ. This ourness, this unity, this oneness that we are participants in was secured by the death of Jesus Christ. John 17, Father, make them one even as we are one. The oneness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the oneness of the Trinity. It's incredible what God has done. And it can only be accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. And that oneness is experienced, the oneness that Christ secured through His death for us is experienced only as we each walk in the light with Him who is in the light. John chapter 1. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we will have fellowship with one another. Our. Huge. Probably the most overlooked word in this whole prayer and one of the most significant. Father. Father. This is absolutely unique to the New Testament. Jesus burst on the scene, and He's calling God His Father, and He's encouraging His disciples to do the same. It never occurs one time it doesn't occur in the Old Testament. There are something like 15 times when when God is called the Father of Israel um, or the Father of the nations, but there is not a single time where there's an individual in the Old Testament who speaks to God as Father. And yet, it is the most natural thing for you and I to do. In fact, the Spirit of God cries out within us, Paul says in Romans, saying, Abba, Father. And so you don't even have to teach a new Christian to address God as Father. The Spirit of God is teaching him to do so. That is the most natural, instinctive thing for the Christian to refer to God as Father. It is a personal word. It's a word of intimacy. It's a word of relationship but it's also a word of authority, and it is clearly a masculine word. We are never encouraged in Scripture to call God Mother, never. But we are encouraged to call Him Father. And again, the Spirit of God cries out within us, Abba, Father. Some people, both men and women, um, have a hard time with this because they had a difficult experience with their own dads. And I would not be the first who is observed. You will have a difficult time with God until you can call Him Father. And if you cannot willingly from the heart say, Father God, I believe that you are resisting the Spirit of God. And you are robbing yourself of the fullness of what God wants you to know, God as Father. There are so many other ways that we can refer to him, and they would be biblical, but the one thing that Jesus is highlighting here is that aspect of masculine authority. Father, we revere him, we, we fear him, and yet we can have personal, intimate access to him. Father role, even though you may have not had a good one, The father role is indispensable to understanding who our God is. And I would encourage you to to define father, not by your own biological father, but to define father by how he is revealed in Scripture. In heaven, our father who art in heaven. In other words, don't relate to him as your father in heaven. Our Father is in heaven. He is transcendent as well as personal. He is imminent and transcendent, as the theologians would like to say. In heaven speaks of his sovereignty, his authority, his supremacy, his power. He is above all other gods. And we must keep that in mind when we approach him. And then the first of the petitions... Hallowed be thy name, or your name made holy. There are a lot of different things here that Jesus could have said. He could have said, Majestic be your name, Exalted be your name, Righteous be your name, Justice be your name, Compassion be your name. Could have gone through all the ways that God has revealed in the Old Testament. Even one where he says, Jealous is my name. He didn't use any of those. He said, Hallowed be thy name, made holy. It is the only attribute of God, holiness, that is repeated three times when it is referred to God. The first time is in Isaiah 6. If you want to just flip to your Bible, back in your Bible and go to Isaiah 6, where we see Isaiah was allowed to see God, to see him on his throne. And the experience was, was overwhelming. Overwhelming. Isaiah 6 verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he he flew. And one called out to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is our God. Holy, holy, holy. If you look over at Revelation chapter 4, we see the same scenario repeated, Revelation 4, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say. It's an amazing ref- that this is a constant refrain. It is, and again, Jesus says, don't use meaningless words. So something can be repeated and not being meaningless. So they aren't just saying this in order to fill the air with noise. But this is the constant refrain of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. I didn't ask Todd to start us out today by singing holy, 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 but I'm so glad that he did. Because this is the ambition of heaven. This is the one thing that characterizes heaven. Where the four living creatures are constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy. In verse 11 of chapter 4, Worthy art thou, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and they were created. Verse 9, Worthy art thou, O Lord, to to take the book and to break its seals. And then in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the nature of heaven, to cry out in praise to God for all that he is. But the most fundamental praise, most fundamental basic way that we can exalt him is by crying out his holiness, but even more so to be holy. The only way to truly make his name holy is for those who are his to be holy. This is why Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And the angel had to come over with a burning coal and touch his lips in order to cleanse him. We can never be holy by anything we do. We cannot make ourselves holy. All we can do is come in humility, in brokenness, even in our impurity, in our unrighteousness, to the one who is holy and say, cleanse me, O God. God wants His people to be a holy people. Recall when we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah, we looked a bit at the holiness of God. And to to be holy, we think, fundamentally means to be without sin, and that would be true. But it's more basic than that. It literally means holy other. There's God is beyond all comparison. He is not just supremely more righteous than we are, better than we are, um, more just than we are, more merciful than we are. He's not just more than. He is wholly other than we. This is why God's people are to be wholly distinct from the world because God is not like this world. The God of heaven, the King of kings and Lord of lords is not like the gods of this world. And his people will also be wholly distinct holy other. He wants to be hallowed by us, to be hallowed among us. This is to be the character of his people more than anything else, holiness. Starts from the inside out. I can't, again, make myself pure. I can't make myself holy. I can't cleanse myself from my own sin. The only thing I can do is come to the one who cleanses me by his blood, and we are washed clean, made holy. Hallowed be thy name. This is the first petition. The number one thing that should be on each of our hearts and minds is that God's people be a holy people. This is more important than what's going on in the White House. This is more important than what's going on in our Congress. It's more important than what's going on in our local governments. And there's much unrighteousness and much to be concerned about. But our primary concern should be that God's name is made holy among God's people. Thy kingdom come. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? As opposed to our kingdom. It's very easy for us to get our kingdoms disturbed. We look at now hyperinflation and some are looking at what they have um, squirreled away for retirement and it's getting smaller all the time and it's going to get even smaller. Could be that this entire world economic system would collapse. I hear more and more people predicting that it will. Well, that's our kingdom. And if that's what it takes for his kingdom to come, He says, thy kingdom come. How do you know when you have prayed through a matter sufficiently? Have you ever been deep in prayer, fervent in prayer, and you just sense the Spirit of God going, I got this now. You can stop. There have been a couple times when I've really had that distinct impression when I have just been been agonizing in prayer over something. And there's just been a couple of times when it's like I just reached a point where it's just the Lord says, I've heard you. I've got it. It's going to be okay. And in each of those instances, I have come to a place where all I wanted was his kingdom to come and for his will to be done. It's because there's nothing in Scripture that tells us when you've prayed sufficiently about something. When you have not yet seen the answer, how long do you continue to pray? Well, one answer is you just continue to pray until you see the answer. But sometimes the Lord gives you that sense, it's, I've got it. Or it might be, as he said with Paul, you can just stop praying about it because I'm not going to answer this request. But other times he says you can stop because I've heard it. I've heard you, and I have answered. I remember when I was in Bible college and my um, sister-in-law who was widowed because my brother had died. And I was just in, in so much prayer for her and just what was next in her life. And I was agonizing for her. And I can remember just crying out to God, and there just came a moment where the Lord said, I've got it. And it was very soon after that, um, she, I don't remember if she called or she wrote, I think she called and, and said that she had just randomly been asked out to lunch by a businessman in Kerrville, who owned the only Christian business store, Christian bookstore at the time in Kerrville. And they went out to lunch, and by the time the lunch was over, he had made her his partner, and then later gave the whole business to her. So God met her needs. It was a perfect fit for her. And, um, and I didn't know how God was answering my prayer, but I knew he was saying, I've got it. Pray thy kingdom come. Pray thy will be done. That's all that matters. Had a student up at Ravencrest come to me the last hour, I just finished, getting ready to go into the truck, and he says, can you tell me how to know God's will? (laughs) I'm just going. (laughs) That's a big question, and I'm going to be in the truck in five minutes going back to Texas. But I told him this. I said, you pray until your will doesn't matter, and then you will know God's will. Because it's not about our will. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That's what God is after. And not just for me personally, individually again, but corporately. What a people we would be as the bride of Christ if our only concern that God's name is hallowed, that his kingdom comes, and that his will is done. What a people we would be. For well, that bride only has one ambition, and that is to see your bridegroom. And then until that day that his name be hallowed. Clearly, his kingdom has not come yet. Jesus is saying, pray, thy kingdom come. His kingdom is not here yet. Amen? <laughs> I wish it were. And I, I want sometimes to think that it is. I hear people say, it's here. You just need to believe it. Well, I... <laughs> I I don't have that much faith because I'm looking around and I am not seeing his kingdom. Again, when I look at Scripture and see what his kingdom is going to look like, where the lion will lie down with the lamb and the swords are beaten into plowshares, and I'm going, we're not there yet. We are not there yet. His kingdom is yet to come. And when it does come, the Scripture says he will crush all the kingdoms of this world. There will only be one, and it will be His. We are not there yet, but it is perfectly valid to pray, Thy kingdom come. It's like the prayer at the end of Revelation, Lord Jesus, come quickly. My favorite prayer of all, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Thy kingdom come, come quickly. And Jesus is encouraging us here to pray for those things, that His name would be hallowed, that His kingdom would come, and that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, none of us have ever been to heaven, so we can only speculate a little bit about how His will is done in heaven. I would imagine it would be how my mother encouraged us for her will to be done on earth. (laughs) And there were a few admonitions about her how her will was to be done. Without talking back, (laughs) right? No sass, no lip, just do it. My mother used to say, if I put a skunk on a stick and told you to lick it, I'd want you to lick it. Now, I don't know why she'd put a skunk on a stick or want us to lick it, but the idea was pretty graphic. No reservation, no question, just do it. How do people come up with statements? I guess she was from Oklahoma, so maybe that was why. I, I don't know. Without reservation, I have to imagine that God's will in heaven is done without reservation. I have to imagine that it's done perfectly. All that was asked was done. I'll never forget, I felt so bad. One year when I was an intern at His Hill and I lived with two other single men and they used to send students around to um, different houses to clean and two or three girls came to our house, three single men, and cleaned our house while we were gone and came back and everything that they'd done, they'd done wonderfully. There was a list of what they were to do. And they even went beyond the list, and they cleaned the fireplace. Wow, they weren't even asked to do that. But the boss, our housekeeping um, supervisor, she said, did they do everything on the list? And we had a copy of that list. And I said, everything they did, they did really well. And she goes, that's not what I asked. I said, they even went beyond the list. Not what I asked. Did they do everything on the list? And I said, no. They didn't clean the kitchen window above the sink. That was on the list, and it didn't get done. Thank you very much. She got those girls up from the dining room, and she made them go back to our house and miss their supper and do what was on the list. Our students think we're hard on them. No. (laughs) But it was a great lesson. Do what's asked. Thank you for the initiative, but I didn't ask you to go and do beyond what's on the list. I want you to do what I was asked of you. There I have this little book here. Victory in Christ, wonderful little book. And at the end of it, there's a chapter that's worth the price of the book. It's called Perils of the Victorious Christian Life. And one of those perils is going beyond the will of God. And he says, if Satan can't trip you up by keeping you from doing what God wants you to do, he'll try to trip you up by getting you to do more than what God wants you to do. He just has a will. Thy will be done. And so doing it on earth as it is in heaven means without any lip, without any reservation, and perfectly, just as he says, not more, not less. It means willingly doing his will, not with complaint. And maybe, and I put this down last, and I have to think it probably the f- should be first, joyfully, joyfully. Can you imagine any angel in heaven saying, really? Again, you mean what? Joyfully, his will is done with joy, and I think that's where again the aspect of father comes in. When a most children lose this, I get it. I'm a dad, but when those children are little, there is often great joy in doing what the father asks, because they so take joy in their father. And I used to, on Saturdays, try to motivate our boys by saying, I'm going to give you a man's job. One of you cannot accomplish it by yourself, but the three of you together could get it done. As they got a little older, that wasn't such a motivation anymore. (laughs) But when they were little, I could just see them just kind of go, we're going to do a man's job? Yeah. You know, and they were just kind of, they were ready. You know, they're going, they're Yeah. I remember my grandfather, I don't think he ever asked me to do anything that I did not do with joy, because I so loved him and enjoyed him. And it, whatever it was, just with joy, quick, without reservation, without hesitancy, and he didn't ask me to do a lot, but whatever he did, boy, I, get, I get to do this for pop. That's how I believe God's will is done in heaven. And he would have his will done on earth among his people in the same way. No reservation, perfectly, not less than or more than his will, willingly with a joyful heart. And then he gets into um, three more requests that have to do with our needs. The first has to do with God and Him being exalted. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. So the first is about Him. It's okay to pray about our own needs as well. Some people think that it's not spiritual to talk about non-spiritual things, our needs. Why not? God knows we have physical needs, and He wants us to talk to Him about them. People ask me how I ended up at Dallas Seminary. And I go, well, it's not very spiritual. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, I applied to two seminaries. I got accepted at both. And with less than a week to go before school started at either place, Dallas Seminary called me up and said, we've got a bed available. that just came available. So I went to Dallas Seminary. That's not very spiritual, is it? But that was how God led. God opens up places to sleep. God provides for all of our needs. And so this is why the first request as we pray for our own needs is for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Most people at this time when Jesus said these words worked day to day. They got paid every day. They didn't get paid at the end of the week. They got paid at the end of the day. And if they didn't get that day's pay, they didn't have food for the next day. That was hand-to-mouth living. We all live hand-to-mouth. We just don't realize it because we're so blessed. But there is everything we have comes from God. And God, at this particular time, has been pleased to allow us to have um, today's bread and tomorrow's and the next day's. And if you're a Mormon, you've got two years' worth of bread stored up in your house. But that is not how the world has normally lived, and much of the world still does not live that way today. But whether you've got two years stored up in your house or you've only got lunch, everything comes from God, everything. And God wants us to remember that, and this is why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Keep in mind it's corporate, so I'm not just praying for my daily bread, but give us and it's pretty difficult to pray for the us when you've got two days' worth of food and your part of the us doesn't even have today's food. And so this is one of the reasons we pray corporately because it makes us aware of more than just our own needs. There are those of us in this body, whether it's this local church or the Bride of Christ universally, who have great needs. And we have, if we have more than what we need, it is likely for other people. Give us this day our daily bread. It all comes from God. We stand together in our need as children with expectant and dependent hearts. I had a friend who, right out of Bible college, he pastored a church. He was young, newly married, with one child. Um, no seminary experience. Really too young to be pastoring this church, but he, um, he took it, the Baptist church, and he was preaching that it is God who meets our needs. And every day it is God who meets our needs. And after he'd finished preaching, it's a true story, the head deacon that was in charge of the finances came up to him and said, it's good thing you believe that, Pastor, because we can't pay you this month. Whoa. And this young pastor, probably 30, 40 years younger than that deacon, said, sir, you never have paid me. It's always been God who has met my needs, and he will always be God that meets my needs. And God met their needs that month. Our bread comes from God. Daily bread speaks of perpetual need and a perpetual request. If you need bread every day, and he says, pray daily for your daily bread, then this is not a prayer that is repetitious to Him if it is truly coming out of our need. We are to pray. It is not ritualistic. It is reality. Bread was the most basic need. He gives so much more, and we are to be content with what He does give us. But the point here is to know that everything comes from God, and we say, God, we need you to supply. It doesn't come from our efforts and our abilities, though God uses our efforts and abilities. It comes from God. Give us this day our daily bread. Secondly, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this particular point is so important and so critical to the Christian life that even after he finishes the prayer, he's going to come back, circle back around to that, and give two more verses about forgiveness. And we all know what a big deal forgiveness is. And again, when you pray corporately, it's hard not to be mindful. When you have the body and mind, it's hard not to be mindful where there has been offense taken and there is unforgiveness. Do we realize, do we appreciate how great the need is for forgiveness? Forgiveness... God's forgiveness of us is what cleanses us and restores us to fellowship with God. You cannot have restoration of relationship without first having forgiveness. Now, you can have forgiveness and still not have a restored relationship. And I believe that in paying for the sin of all humanity, God has forgiven all. But no one is restored until they receive the forgiveness. But there's nothing more that needs to be done to be forgiven. Jesus has paid for it. It's all been done. It's all been paid for. But that must be received. It must be acknowledged as a gift and freely received as a gift. Do we realize, do we appreciate on what basis this forgiveness is granted to us? The blood of Jesus Christ being paid for our sin. It is a costly forgiveness It's not cavalier. It's not flippant. It's costly. On the basis of Christ having died for us, we are forgiven. Do we realize, do we appreciate how important it is to forgive others? The prerequisite to being forgiven experientially, not positionally, not before God, but experientially, knowing forgiveness, the prerequisite to knowing the forgiveness of God in our present relationship with Him is to forgive others. So Jesus says, forgive us our debts. Debts is, 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 is maybe, I appreciated one Arthur that I was reading, said that this word for debt may have come from the Aramaic, which is the word for sin. Don't know, but at least speaks of what we have done wrong. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then verse 14, for if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So there's a condition there. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Those are some of the most uncomfortable verses in the Bible, I think. Again, the only condition to receiving the forgiveness of God is to place our faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only condition to knowing the forgiveness of God is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And Colossians says the certificate of debt against us is canceled at that point. There is no more debt. There is no more sin. So what is he talking about here? It would seem to be the experience of forgiveness, knowing you're forgiven, Feeling it in your bones, perhaps, though I don't like to put emphasis on feelings, as you know. But how can this go from head to heart? Sometimes it would seem that people have no heart knowledge of the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ because they have not extended forgiveness to their brothers and sisters in Christ. If you forgive men, you will be forgiven. If you do not forgive... Your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So it seems there's a direct connection here. Maybe to put it this way, keep it back on the Father and us. The Father of us all wants us all to be right with each other, or things won't be right with Him. That, just putting it that way helped me to work through this very difficult thought that we will not be forgiven unless we forgive. How can my Father, who loves us all, work so that, I, so that bestow me with the personal knowledge of His forgiveness of me, when He can't be pleased because of how I'm relating to the other siblings? When I'm with the grandkids, and we had all eight of them together on Christmas Day, wonderful time, but it was a little loud, <laughs> to say the least. And they were just having fun. Those seven boys, um, six of them, the one of them can't participate yet. But six of those, of those boys just having so much fun together. And it was loud. Running around, riding the big wheels that we've got for them and things. And great time. But if they stop and just start yelling at each other and screaming at each other and fighting each other, then it's not right with granddad. And it's hard for me to shower those kids with all that is in my heart for them when they're knocking heads with each other. I want them, as not as their father, but as their grandfather, and I know their dads want the same. They want them to get along with each other. And I, and I just have to hold my heart back How can I come to them and say, and they want to just make sure everything's okay with grandpa, with pop. Oh, pop, pop, pop. Everything's great with pop. But you hate each other? No. Doesn't work that way. You want to be right with me? Then be right with each other. There is this conditional, personal aspect of that relationship with him. It's not works. It's not performance basis. It's just God saying, my heart is for all of you. For each one of you, I have a full, overflowing heart. And so how can I be pleased? How can my heart be be free towards you when you hate your brother? You're not going to know the fullness of my heart until you are right with your brother. And again, I want to be so careful here. It is not in our power to make things right 100% with other people. It takes two to get things right. It is in our power to forgive others. And he's saying, forgive. Forgive us our debts, even as we have forgiven others. And then the third and final request, petition that Jesus encouraged us to make, is in respect to temptation. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The benediction here is probably added. That's why it's in brackets in your Bible, more than likely. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. It's all true. We saw that in Revelation 4, Revelation 5, same kind of statement. But it probably was not in the original manuscripts. The oldest manuscripts we have do not have that conclusion. It would be our way of saying amen. And it was their way. It was their way of saying amen to a prayer. So probably some scribe along the way, he was, just in the, he was just used to hearing prayers closed out as thine is the kingdom and power and forever and glory forever, amen, and he, and he just, just came out of it. He wrote it down, and it became part of our tradition, but not probably how Jesus closed up this prayer. But he is saying very clearly, we should pray that we not be led into temptation. Now, this is a difficult thing because God does not tempt us. He cannot tempt us. And so in what sense are we to pray, don't lead us into temptation? Well, it could mean he's talking about testing here, because God will test us. He just won't tempt us. That could be. I had lunch with Jerry Benjamin in Colorado Springs on my drive up, and so I asked him about this verse. What is the answer to this that we are praying, lead us not into temptation? And Jerry was so helpful. I hope you're listening today, Jerry. And he said, I don't know. So said, I'm going to quote you, Jerry. He goes, okay, you can quote me, so I'm quoting him. It's a difficult passage, again, because God doesn't tempt us. So why would we pray not to be led into temptation? I came across one writer who says, this is not based on logic or theology, but a heart, desire, and inclination that motivates the believer to avoid the danger and trouble that sin creates. Jesus is just saying, have the heart, the kind of heart that doesn't want to get close to sin. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. So it's just the heart that says, God, I don't even want to be tempted. And God wants us to have that kind of heart. Having said that, I appreciate what Oswald Chambers says, and also Charles Trumbull in this little pink book. In his Perils of the Christian Life, one of the first perils he lists is the peril, he says, to think that the victorious life is, is not the, he says, the, the victorious life is not the untempted life, but it is the most tempted life that anyone can live. Chambers says the same thing. He says, no one was ever more tempted than Jesus was. No one is ever more yielded than Jesus was. So as soon as you yield yourself to Jesus, you make yourself the target of the tempter, who is the devil. The devil is the tempter. It's one of his names. Trumbull goes on to say, Indeed, it may fairly be said that no one knows the full meaning of temptation until he has dared to trust Christ for full victory. Then come the temptations as never before. Desperate, diabolical, hellish, subtle, refined, Gross, spiritual, fleshly, the whole gamut of all the deception and the downpour that the world, the flesh, and the devil can bring to the soul of a child of God. But Christ sees them all, and he is standing on sentry guard in our lives against them. And he goes on from there. So the Christian life, the yielded life, is a life of temptation. Jesus knew that. He himself was tempted. So it's not logical or theological to expect to never be tempted. But we ought to have that heart that says, God, I don't even want to be tempted. Keep me from sin. It's a wonderful prayer. And if we've seen anything in working through it, I hope it's that God is our Father. We pray corporately with the whole body in mind, not just individualistically. We pray to him as Father who is both loving and kind personal, and he is also sovereign authority. And the one desire above all else, is where my heart has been meditating for the last two weeks on this passage, is that he be hallowed. That God's name be hallowed among God's people. I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much again for your word and for these basic words, Lord, of just how to even talk to you, of what pleases your heart to hear from your people. Thank you for giving us this instruction. Thank you, God, for your spirit that leads us into all truth, even in how to pray. And we pray that we would be listening to your word and listening to your spirit as we approach you. That we'd be a people who revere you, who count you as worthy, that we see you as worthy of all power and majesty, and that our hearts would be humbled before you, that we would tremble, God, while also knowing that you love us and that your love will never fail, never turn away from us. Nothing could ever separate us from your love. Thank you, O God, for being all that you are, supreme deity, almighty God, and our loving Father. In Jesus' name.